0: Hi there. Good morning. Go ahead and ooh, that's a good sound, huh? All right. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead and turn to Second Corinthians chapter two. Corinthians, first and second, they're uh, they're uncomfortable. A lot of the times, you know. I mean, First Corinthians had some weird stuff in it. There were some problems there. that were like, huh, at least that's not my church, you know. And and there there's, um, you know, there was sin. There's sin in the church, and it was sin in a lot of different, uh, uh, showing itself in a lot of different ways, a lot of different variety uh, to sin. And in Second Corinthians, it's it's different. It's a different tone in First Corinthians, but we see that the same way. But what we what we see. And the passage that we come to today, especially, is that when you're witnessing you know a broken church like Corinthians, like we saw in First Corinthians, or you're you're witnessing uh, you know, relationships fall apart or these cliques that start forming and the divisions within the church, what you are seeing is not a failure of, you know the the org structure of the church or failure in, you know, management from some boardroom or something like that. you're seeing, Satan's work in living technicolor. (laughs) Um, And and Paul, of course, has this this eternal perspective. He's got his eyes on heaven. But what that allows him uh, to do is to see the world in front of him and the church in front of him as the battleground that it truly is. And so he can write to the Corinthians and say more than he writes to any other church, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then he sees their mistakes as, that's demonic. That's Satan, that you're you're on his team right now. And he can do both of those things at the same time and have some of the strongest corrective language and the most affectionate pastoral language in the same book because he sees things through a spiritual lens. And so I'm going to read uh, from verse 5 to verse 17, and then we'll pray, of course, that we have that same lens, that the Holy Spirit anoints our eyes so that we can see uh, the text for what it is and see the Word of God for what it is, but also see our church and see the world we live in uh, through this this reality of spiritual warfare. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, But all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything I also forgive, for if any, for indeed, if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of him, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be given to us to to give us understanding of spiritual things. Um, We we ask with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? And we say, it's not us, uh, but you are sufficient and your grace is sufficient for us for the weak among us and we're all weak. We need your strength, we need your light, we need your revelation. We pray your anointing on the preaching of your word today. Amen. Amen. We're really going to be spending most of our time explaining verse 11 and how it affects the rest of the passage. Verse 11 says, "Satan, uh, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." Let me tell you this, Satan has a plan for your life. And I know that's not the usual way the gospel is spoken, but it is a truth that we would do well not to ignore. Um, you know, there's an element to this passage, and and we have to get some context for this passage by going back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. He's talking about this man, such a man. There was a certain person who was uh, cast out of the church, maybe, or disciplined very with, with a lot of harshness, a lot of strictness. And he's saying we forgive that kind, and we welcome them back. Um, but to, to see the... The way the church had dealt with sin incorrectly on every side from a lot of different angles, it's a little bit like rolling over a rotting log and watching all the bugs scatter. You know, we're uncovering things that prefer to remain covered. And verse 11 tells us that we are not ignorant of what goes on under the log. We are not ignorant of the devices of Satan. He has strategies that he is still using, not just because he's uncreative, but because the old ways still work. So in verses 5 through 11, we get to see exactly how our enemy works in a variety of ways and be led into the light by Paul, who uncovers our enemy's secrets. Uh, Then we have the rest of the chapter, and we see that Satan is not the only one who has a plan for your life. Verse 11 is essential in understanding the first half. Verse 14 is the counterpoint that opens up the second half. He says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Satan has schemes he has devices, he has strategies, and God has victory. Satan is subtle, he's tricky, and he has ways of tempting you in unexpected ways, which is why it's important to know his strategies. But interestingly enough, God also works in unexpected ways, not to tempt but to bless. And if we are ignorant of his methods, we won't be able to see this triumph in Christ that God leads us into. So verses 5 through 11, we kind of roll over the rotting log. We look into the creepy crawlies. In verses 14 through 17, we pull back the curtain and behold the glory of the Lord. And verses 12 and 13, I'm not even going to talk about. Um, it's it's a little bit of travel. I'll talk about it right now, but that's it. Um, it's a bit of Paul's travel log, and it really belongs kind of to the stuff that we were talking about last week to remind the Corinthians why Uh, He didn't come to visit as he initially intended. He includes his traveling plans. So you can look in the last book of your Bible, Maps, and see Paul's missionary journeys, and then that verse will make sense, but it's not going to make it into today's sermon. So let's start right in. Verse 5, he says, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So we need a little background. What man, what decision was made with the enjo- uh, by the majority? Um, what happened to lead to this place where Paul's saying you really should forgive him and you're not? If you go back to verse 4, you see that Paul wrote, he said, he said that he wrote to them out of much affliction and anguish of heart. And he said that this was because of his great love for them. Well, now he's clarifying here that this anguish that he felt was not because anyone had offended him personally, though they certainly tried. Now, this can be a little confusing because it almost sounds like Paul says, you really grieved me. And then now he's saying, you have not grieved me. You're grieving yourselves. That's not quite how this is being said. Um, think Think of this in terms of parent and child, which is actually how Paul describes his relationship with this church elsewhere. If a toddler insults the parent in English or in whatever language toddlers speak, or is perhaps violent even towards the parent, the parent may be grieved. Not because the parent actually thinks that the toddler's opinion is valid. Or, and not because the toddler did any actual damage, but the parent is grieved because their child, who they love, is turning out to be a really awful person. (laughs) And that just breaks your heart. Love for the child and a keen interest in the child's well-being grieves the parent much more than what is done or what is said by the child. There were sins that had taken place in Corinth that were not directly against Paul though they had some harsh words against him, but he's saying, that's that's not what stings. The stuff you say about Paul, and Paul's not all that, and we don't need to listen to Paul. Like, okay, it's really annoying that you're this kind of person. But the thing is, you're hurting yourself by all of your negative attitudes, by your sin, not me. Paul's going to be addressing a situation with a specific sinner and the church's relationship to that person, and he is convincing them that he, Paul, doesn't have anything personal against this guy, and yet he takes this person's soul and the souls of the other church members very seriously. Now, what guy are we talking about? Paul mentions such a man in verse 6, which is the same way he talks about a specific man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man who was in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. Such a man. We're really thankful. He's really thankful that his name didn't make it into the book. You know, we're nice that we just talk about this guy like such a man, because if it was the name, it would just be like scratched off all the baby name lists forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, But this was a sin that was being tolerated by the church in Corinth. And Paul had strong words for the church regarding this sin in 1 Corinthians. But what what often happens when someone corrects the evildoer, their grief over the sin is mistaken for personal offense. And this is why Paul says, you haven't grieved me. Paul says, this is terrible. This is terrible what you're doing. And they would respond, of course, what's your problem? Now we already see one of Satan's devices. If you're not careful, you'll miss it. But the obvious one in 1 Corinthians 5, the, the, the device of Satan is that tolerating sin and calling yourself welcome and open about things that cannot be welcomed by God. That, that's a satanic strategy right there. That's the first one. But there's something more subtle here. Why does Paul have to say that no one caused him grief? To correct a lie about sin and a lie about rebuke. When someone condemns sinful behavior, they are often rebuffed with something like this question, well, why do you care so much? And they will be asked, how does, how does this affect you at all? My sin, how, do, how does that affect you? Or they will say that the one condemning the sin is just personally offended or perhaps even consumed with some obsession about their abhorrent behavior. In their eyes, it is the one correcting sin and pleading for righteousness that is wrong-headed. When Paul says, no, you haven't hurt me the way you think you have. You've hurt yourselves. He's revealing one of Satan's devices. A sinner can easily shrug off correction by saying that the one correcting them is just too emotional. Or moralistic, too strict, puritanical. They're somehow psychologically stunted Paul has to say, I wasn't writing this stuff because I was personally offended. You're just gross. Um, This this strategy of our enemy can be seen, is seen extremely clearly in the conversations about gender ideology and the strong push push for normalization of homosexuality. Uh, When the question of so-called gay marriage was being debated, now it's just pushing on an open door, it's not debated anymore. But when it was being debated, a common refrain for those in favor was, how does my marriage affect your life? They'd say, how does my relationship have any effect on your relationship? The assumption was that the only way you could pass judgment on someone else's behavior is that you were personally hurt or grieved by it, or even afraid of it. And they would roll their eyes at the Christians who are, for some reason, so fascinated with the sex lives of others. How weak, how petty. The same thing the Corinthians were assuming with Paul. And Paul says this, I'm not the one being grieved. I'm not the one being grieved. It's you. Sin is tearing you apart. Not me. I'm in anguish because I love you and I can't stand the thought of you destroying yourselves. But the offense was against the community that tolerated the sin, not the one correcting it. The damage by sin is done primarily to the sinner and those who are unwilling to remove it or those even who encourage the sinful lifestyle. The doctor is not harmed by the cancer he cuts out of a patient. The patient who refuses an operation is the one who is grieved. The family and friends of the patient who say, you're not really sick, or a doctor who refuses to give proper treatment, those are failures and should be ashamed. Here's your enemy's device. Tolerate sin, that's first. How does he maintain this position? By convincing the corrected sinner that those who are calling them from their evil ways are just personally offended. This removes the conversation Away from objective truth, from good versus evil, from righteousness versus unrighteousness, and certainly far, far away from divine perfection into an area of ambiguous personal preference. That's the only thing we have to to reference now. And here's the thing. The The Corinthians were in this place. They said it's a Paul issue. Paul's really offended. Paul really cares about things. He's so emotional. But here's the thing. The Corinthians did correct the offender. The majority, he says it was from the majority, the majority did heed the words of 1 Corinthians. In this case, they addressed the person in this in the sin and they gave it to him with both barrels. And they kicked him out of the church and shut the door and locked it. And Paul did a first century face poem. He's like, that was so not what I intended for you to do. That is, This isn't how this is supposed to go. They did correct the offender. Paul had advised them to deliver such a one over to Satan. They excommunicated this person. And there is a reason for this that Paul will describe. But you have to count on the enemy of this man's soul to continue in his work. And once more, we are not ignorant of his devices. In verse 6 and 7, he says, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Meaning, he he says, enough. Enough. Just just take a couple steps back. So that, verse 7, So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Strategy number one was make sin tolerable. That was back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Strategy number two, discount the naysayers like Paul as personally offended people, thereby rephrasing the conversation in terms of offense rather than right and wrong. But when the sin is shown to be what it is, that is a counterfeit for joy, poison instead of nourishment, and a self-inflicted wound, their strategy number three from Satan himself. Let the sinner be swallowed up with too much sorrow. That's the phrase Paul uses. Charles Spurgeon spoke of this strategy, saying, The devil throws the sinner down and pulls him almost limb from limb by persuading him that his guilt is heinous beyond parallel and his iniquities are far beyond the reach of mercy and his death warrant already signed. We are not ignorant of these devices. We can call things satanic that are. Before the sin is committed, the enemy will convince you that not only is it not so bad, but that the fruit is good for food, that it is pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. The sin that you are tempted with will appear to be the most sensible, pleasant, even innocent thing to do until you do it. Then the enemy goes to page two of the playbook He will try to convince you that this particular sin that you just committed is past forgiveness. There's no hope for someone like you. Now, of course, it's true that sin separates us from God. But in the Garden of Eden, after the first sin was committed, who hid from whom? Did God hide from the sinner? No, he pursued the sinner. The sinner hid from God, believing the lie that their sin was too much for him to handle. He can't see me when I'm only wearing this. The Corinthians apparently resisted the excommunicated sinner even after some sort of repentance was attempted. And in their strictness, they played right into the enemy's hands. Satan's devices are seen against the one who had been cast out and against the church itself. The man who had been punished was right where Satan wanted him, thinking that he couldn't repent. Even the church was rejecting him. That must mean God is rejecting him. There are many people who have been caught in this place. There were people who were cruel, which gave them a reason to believe that God was cruel. People in the church hurt them, so they conclude with a little help from the father of lies that God has hurt them. And the church is being attacked as well on the other side, and they're losing. The congregation that has exercised this kind of church discipline has now taken a hard stance on sin. And they are proud of themselves now for not forgiving and not comforting the one who has sinned. They have moral high ground. They have standards now. And they are so proud that they will no longer allow themselves to be corrupted by such as these. The Corinthians have taken a decided turn now. Instead of being licentious, they wash their hands. They do not eat with tax collectors and sinners. Not only was the punished one now losing the battle by being swallowed up in sorrow, but the church is losing the battle by trading grace for law. They helped promote this idea that there are sins that are just too much, that there are evils that you can't come back from. That's what the church was saying, and it's not the gospel. The gospel is about the restoration of the repentant sinner. And Paul's admonition to the church, his battle plan to fight against Satan's strategy, is something that should not surprise you. Verse 8, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Go tell him how much you love him. He won't believe you at first at all. That's why you need to reaffirm your love for him. When Peter writes love covers a multitude of sins, he meant it. And already in the passage, we can see some of the sins that it covers. Sins are always based in lies. And love is always truthful. The lie that the punished sinner believed, that things were just too bad. There was no hope. That was a lie against joy. It was a lie that said forgiveness isn't for you. And, and, and this doubt can be a sin. Despair can be a sin or the result of sin. The love that should be shown to this man would correct any doubt that God loved him, any overabundant sorrow that would keep him from the joy that comes from forgiveness, the joy that is his birthright as a believer. The sins of the church, denying comfort for this man, denying forgiveness, refusing the repentant sinner, love, their practice of loving this man, would cover these sins as well. The love of the church would not only have an effect on the man's sins, but it would make their own sin of spiritual pride and unforgiveness impossible. We are not ignorant of the enemy's devices, but neither are we left without weapons. We know what he's going to do, and we have our marching orders. Our weapons are strong for tearing down strongholds such as these, and love is a weapon. Read verses 9 and 10. He says, For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Paul says, Don't withhold forgiving him on my account. I've already forgiven him. I'm gonna I'm gonna back you up in this decision to do the right thing. My authority goes with you to forgive. So you don't. You don't need to pretend that you can't forgive him because, well, Paul wouldn't do that. Paul hates sin. Paul takes sin seriously. You can't play that game. Paul models Christ for them and us here. There was no sin that Paul was willing to tolerate, that's for sure, but there's also no sin Paul was unwilling to forgive. These are not in any way conflicting ideas. It comes right from the words of Jesus. In Luke 17, 3, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. It's simple, right? There is no sin that God will wink at or suddenly approve of. There is no sin that God will allow, encourage, approve of. There isn't a single one. But there's also not a single sin that God will not forgive. There's no sin that is past his reach. There's no sin that weakens his power to save. There's no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cover. Charles Spurgeon, in the same sermon I quoted from earlier, continues to address the one who may have been overwhelmed by the weight of their sin. He says this, he says, ah, poor soul, get up again. The devil has no right to throw you down. Your sin cannot be too great for God's mercy. One drop of the Savior's precious blood could extinguish a thousand flaming words, if God should will it much more put out the burning fears of your poor heart. If thou believest in Christ, thou shalt say to the mountain of thy guilt, be thou removed far hence and cast into the depths of the sea. God forgives sinners. This is crystal clear. Anything that Satan can do to muddy these waters, he will. And one of the ways he does it, his next strategy, is to tell people, God forgives sinners. You don't have to. After all, he can handle it. Paul tells them, you forgive the sinner, just like I'm doing, just as Christ would do. And he tells them that he, Paul, forgives the sinner. Now, we have something here that uh, that reveals, again, a strategy of Satan in our fight against him, which I just mentioned. And some might balk at Paul's statement that he forgives this man. After all, we might say, with the Pharisees, no one can forgive sins but God alone. But here, Paul says, you need to forgive him, and I forgive him personally, even though he had said he was not personally offended by the offense. He wasn't personally grieved. We see an outworking here of what Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 20. In John 20, 23, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We have some resistance to this kind of thing that we would do well to examine carefully and get over. Confessing your sins one to another is part of biblical Christianity. Does God forgive sins? You bet. And he does it through people. He works through people. If you confess your sins to Jesus, does he forgive you? Absolutely. Is there are there any extra steps? No, no there's not. But he tells us in his word to confess to other people. And those people are not supposed to just say, "Well, God can forgive you. I don't know what you want me to do about it." They're supposed to say, with the authority given to them by the Holy Spirit, you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that there's extra steps other than trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What I am saying is that there are real steps to the relief from sin and shame and guilt, and this is one of them. Paul says, well, he writes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's a holy man being moved by the Holy Spirit, and he writes, I forgive that man. And I can guarantee that this man who is in danger of being swallowed up with too much sorrow would receive sweet relief from this news that the apostle forgives him. We are told later in this letter that we have a ministry of reconciliation. This includes the announcement of the forgiveness of sins. For the sinner to conceal their guilt and tell themselves, well, it's okay because God knows it, that may may not be a big theological problem. God is the one who forgives sins, and he knows all yours. But to say to a brother, to a sister, this is my sin, and then have that person filled with the Holy Spirit say to you the truth that you already know, you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. This is part of that ministry of reconciliation that we've been given, and it is a blessing that we neglect to our own peril. Satan's strategy is to isolate us in our sin. Thinking it's unforgivable, well, that's one way. Thinking there's no benefit to confession, that's another. Thinking of sin as something that's forgivable by God, but not you or someone else or just none of your business or maybe not the ministry you're called to, that's another way. Our enemy wars against souls by depriving us of the full experience of forgiveness, holiness, and purity. When Paul says in verse 10, I have forgiven that one for your sakes, in the presence of Christ, in verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He says, if we do not forgive, if he doesn't get this forgiveness from you, then Satan would have taken advantage of us, meaning the whole church. He would have cheated us from that which is rightfully ours, which is the announcement of the forgiveness of sins through this kind of repentance, through this reaffirmation of love, through the welcoming of the repentant sinner. Love covers a multitude of sins, and forgiveness, according to Paul, prevents Satan from taking advantage of the saints of God. That word take advantage there, two words, but one in Greek, it's a very, it a very—it isn't a very common word in the New Testament. It shows up three times in 2 Corinthians, and then once in 2 Thessalonians, and it's translated defrauded uh, half of those times. The idea is that Satan is cheating you out of something that is rightfully yours when he convinces you to withhold forgiveness from another. He has, he has come, we're told, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He takes away the confidence that is the birthright of the believer. He takes away the unity that is ours by the blood of Christ. He takes away our holiness through lies about Compromise and tolerance, and he cheats us out of our ministry of reconciliation by convincing each one to keep your sins hidden rather than publicly forgiven. Publicly meaning in your presence. Doesn't have to be right here. He'll convince you that those who condemn sin are just preaching an outdated moralism or are just taking things too personally. Once sins are committed, he'll make them look unforgivable whether they were yours or someone else's. He'll isolate the forgivers from those in need of forgiving and make them proud of their high standards. He employs these strategies because they work. And I'm telling you now, you've been educated. You know better. We've turned on the light. We've rolled over the rotting log. Let the insects scatter. We know better. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. And you know what? We, we fight better too. Because again, he has devices. He has strategies. And Christ has victory. In verse 14, look at verse 14, it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Satan fights and we win. God always leads us in triumph in Christ. We see an application here or a rephrasing of the principle we know from Romans eight twenty eight, That God works all things out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we see this idea in that little word, diffuse, it's a a common word, it's usually translated revealed, made known, made manifest. It's something that was hidden but then seen clearly. When referring to a fragrance of something, the smell of something, it's talking about the necessary burning, smashing, grinding, or boiling that is necessary to reveal the fragrance previously hidden in something. A mortar and pestle grind spices into powder, and the room is filled with their scent. Leaves are crushed. Tea is boiled. Incense is lit on fire and burned. Perfume carried this this idea, this principle, even in its packaging. You've heard this before, but the bottle of perfume that was poured on Christ's feet was broken. It had to be broken before it could be smelled. Satan attacks. And it is in the midst of these attacks that the knowledge of Christ, like a fragrance brought by the crushing of a spice, is brought around the entire world. Paul will write about this later in the book. I'll give you a preview. But in chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the, the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. He says, the more they kill us, the more Jesus shows himself to be alive. And then Paul records the, the Lord's words in the most clear example, of this upside-down principle by which we are led in triumph, even as we are plagued by our enemies. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus says, My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now go back to chapter, chapter 2, our text here. Read through the end of the chapter, starting in verse 15. It says, But we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. The aroma of Christ, which shows up through our warfare, really, through the attacks. They they, they, they mean different things to different people. These scents, these smells. The conquering Christ leading in triumph is a wonderful, victorious celebration for those who are with him, and it's a terror for all those who would oppose him. The aroma of the knowledge of Christ is a strong repudiation of the proud, but it is a gift and a mercy to those who have humbled themselves under his lordship. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, and he does so with the same move. It's resurrection. It's resurrection. And when we put these pieces together, the facts of our enemy's strategies, the mighty power of love and forgiveness to undo the works of Satan, when we see the the ability, God's ability to turn everything against us into an asset rather than a liability, and his ability to receive glory to himself, even and especially in the midst of the enemy's ploys, we are humbled and we ask, like Paul, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, how could anyone have a part to play in so mighty a plan? Paul is baffled at the thought that anyone could assume this glorious, world-saving plan was the work of a man. The assumed answer of who is sufficient is none of us but Christ and Christ alone. The part Paul plays in all of this is declaring these marvelous truths, not as one who is peddling the word of God, thinking that this was some sort of money-making scheme or power grab, but simply as one who is speaking about what God does. You know what God does? He always leads us in triumph in Christ. He wins. That's what He does. He leads us in victory. He uncovers the hidden strategies of the enemy of your souls, and He leads you in victory over this enemy. He models loving forgiveness towards all those who repent and invites us into his ministry of reconciliation, a ministry of love that completely destabilizes Satan himself. When we talk about the victory of Christ, it's not a bad thing to remember who loses. It's the devil. It's the father of lies, the enemy of your souls. And we share in the victory of Christ by walking in love towards one another and living in the light. Let us ask for the grace to live in that victory let us pray that we would utilize these weapons not carnal weapons but mighty weapons for tearing down such strongholds as these let us thank god and praise him for completely destabilizing completely defeating the enemy and even bringing him into an open shame we praise our king and god jesus christ for his great victory and his love towards us let's pray. We do ask these things for your glory, for the good of your church. We pray that we who are not ignorant of our enemies' devices would walk in love and light and truth, and so live in this triumph that you have led us into. I pray your blessing on this church, on each one here, on each heart here. Lead us, guide us, be our God, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above the heavenly. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You are sent.